Alrighty folks, and welcome to the Conacher Podcast channel. This is episode 46, Tang Tai Zong Part 2. So last time we took a look at the social and political forms that Tang Tai Zong uh, made and what he was trying to achieve with those reforms and basically trying to help China recover from many years of revolts and rebellions under the Sui dynasty and tried and he was basically trying to please the people and to get the economy bouncing once again. Now before I get into his foreign policies which is the main topic of today's show um, I just want to say that this weekend is the Qingming Festival or in English the Tomb Sweeping Festival and I will be doing a special podcast episode on that uh, within a couple of weeks. I'll be doing my research and where it came from and the meaning of the festival and all those things. So yeah, happy Qingming Festival, everyone. Now then, like I said, we're looking at Tan Tai Zone's foreign policies today. And, you know, when the second emperor of the Tang Dynasty became emperor, he wasn't exactly inheriting the best of situations. I mean... Li Yuan or Tang Galzu, the first emperor, he did, you know, he was okay. He he just he was a nice guy. He gave the people that helped him the positions in governments like he's supposed to, and all those things. And then when his second son, Li Shumin, takes over, that's when things really begin to kick off. And the major problem that Li Shumin or now Tang Taizong faced was the northern tribes who were still running rampant all over the place. And in order to deal with the Turks to the north, or the Eastern Turkic Khaganate, um, Li Shimin basically decided that now, like after he was making these social reforms domestically, now was the time to strike at the Eastern Turkic Khaganate. Because before, these people were doing whatever they liked, basically. They would um, make treaties with the Tang in order for like peace and... It was like that age-old tradition that the Han Dynasty did with the Xiongnu sometimes, where they would be- the Chinese would just basically bribe these people to leave them alone. And then, obviously, a year later, they come back, and it's all chaos once again. But, like I said, now was the time for Li Shimin or Tan Tai Zong, to make that move and basically destroy the Eastern Turkic Khaganate. Now, I did find a primary source where... Um, I thought this was really quite neat because it lays out perfectly what the situation was and like the comparison between the Tang Dynasty and the Eastern Turks. And it was written by the commander-in-chief of the army at Daizhou, or modern-day Daishan in Shanxi province. And he wrote, quote, Jia Li Khan, the leader of the Eastern Turks, has always been doing what he wants to do at his own will. He is extremely vicious. He has killed many upright people, and he has been close to death by his own subjects. Tuli Khan, his son, attacked the tribe Turkic of Chunyuantor Khanatan to the west and has made enemies of them. It is the first reason that he can be defeated. The tribes of Tonglua, Pugu, Uyghur, and Chunyuantor have elected their new Khan, now, all these tribes, originally subordinated to Jiali Khan, have turned against him. This is the second reason that he can be defeated. This new leader, was, however, was supposed to have been badly punished by Jiali Khan, who sent a general to defeat him. 
When Yu Gushad, that general, attacked the tribe of Uyghur, he was defeated and ran away. This shows that Jiali Khan's generals and men can be easily defeated. This is the third reason that Jiali Khan can be defeated. There is frost in the area of the north very early. Food supply in the north is short. This is the fourth reason that Jiali Khan can be defeated. Jiali Khan distrusts his own people, but trusted the people of other races. But the people of other races would easily betray him. When they face a great army sent by your majesty, they will surely turn, turn against Jiali Khan. This is the fifth reason that he can be defeated. Now many people from the central part of China have settled down in the area in the north. Most of them have come together to occupy mountains and forests for self-defense. When our army marches out of the Great Wall, they will come out to assist our army. This is the sixth reason that Jiali Khan can be defeated. End quote. Now Tad Taizong, upon reading this memorandum sent by that commander, agreed with the general and the, set, the stage was set for the Tang Dynasty to take on the Eastern Turks. Now the Tang Dynasty's biggest threat wasn't exactly Jiali Khan himself, but Tuli Khan, who was to be the successor and he was the best military commander of the Turks of the time. Now, like I've said previously, Tuli Khan was a sworn brother of Li Shumin. So the two of them going to war should have felt unnatural. But of course, the sworn brother thing gets thrown out of the window if it's a political obstacle. Just look at the story between Liu Bang and Xiang Yu way back to the time the Han Dynasty was rising as a power to control China. Now, I must admit, the memorandum itself, I do love this. I mean, I just, it's like... If it was to be um, translated into Chinese, it would be beautiful. Just because it's just listing six reasons why Jiali Khan would be defeated. Now, it does remind me of Sangua or the Three Kingdoms where... Like, the romance, not the records, but the romance of the Three Kingdoms where... I believe it's uh, Guojia. He is advising Tao Tao that... Yuan Shao can be defeated, and he lists out 10 reasons. The only difference is, though, that in the novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms, there are 10 reasons why Yuan Shao is bad, and the opposite is true for Tao Tao, and uh, that's what Guo Jia is trying to do there. Whereas this memorandum is just more, yeah, the Eastern Turks are kind of screwed, and we are on the rise, basically. So, um, yeah, it's quite interesting when you compare these things. But regardless... In the year 629, the Tang forces mobilized against the Turks and they had good reason to. The Turks once again broke a peace treaty with the Chinese, claiming that they had made peace with the first emperor alone and not the new one. It was a lame excuse, but plausible. The Turks may have seen the new emperor as being weak, considered that he had made peace deals with them before, and ultimately, it was a test for Tan Taizong's mettle. It was, of course, the wrong choice. Under the command of Li Jin, who was the Minister of War, and Zhang Gongjin, the Tang army swept to the north to do battle with the Turks. Now, in terms of literature which describes these conquests, I must admit, I have came up rather short. The reason why, I believe, now I could be wrong about this, but this is uh, what the literature is kind of saying, um, is that it was due to the fact that this conquest just seems like it was a bit easy. Because any literature I read basically says that the Tang army marched where the Turks were and then crushed them. Or 
you know, easily defeated them, then moved on to the next engagement. I couldn't find any detailed battle scenes or any clever plies or anything like that. It just seems that the Tang army, for whatever reason, was just better than the Turks. I don't know what it is. Right? Was it the discipline that Li Ximin instilled in the troops when he was a commander? Was it just the belief that they were better? And, you know, there's always that... Um, that thing that people always talk about, like, you know, they had more to fight for and therefore they fought harder and they were tougher. Like, but I do not know. And I mean, it could be as well that Li Ximin was very good at cavalry tactics and things. So he kind of knew the tactics of these nomadic peoples to the north. I honestly do not know. But like I said, every everything that I read, there wasn't anything that said the Tang were pushed back or suffered any defeats on this campaign. It was literally, they just steamrolled their way to the north. And that was it, really. It was basically game over from there. Um, now, the only thing that I can point to is that the Tang invasion of the Gregorio, uh, which actually suffered a bit of setbacks. But I'll get to that later on. Like I said, the Tang forces were just one victory after victory. And all the other tribal peoples under the rule of the Kaganate soon turned sides and submitted to the Tang court, which is exactly what that officer in that prefecture said would happen. And of course, Tang Taizong allowed them into the empire freely. Now, as the Eastern Turks were beginning to crumble, Taizong is said to have mentioned, quote, In the past, Father Emperor submitted to the Turks for the interest of the people. When I think of this, I always felt pain in my heart. Now the chiefs of the Turks have come to submit to the Tang dynasty. This helps to wipe out this past humiliation. He then goes on to say, Now the tribe of Mohu has come to submit to the Tang dynasty from afar. This is because the Eastern Turks have submitted to the Tang dynasty. There is an ancient saying which goes, There is no best way to conquer the northern tribes. Now I have made China a strong empire and the northern tribes have come to submit to me. This is the best way to bring the tribes to submission. End quote. The best way to look into this is that the Tang Dynasty, after a few victories, um, you know, the tribes that were watching this unfold just began to submit to the Tang like a row of dominoes collapsing one after the other. Uh, because they knew, the, like, they could see the way the wind was blowing at this stage. Now, both Jiali Khan, the leader, as well as his son, Tuli Khan, would both be captured by Tang generals Li Jin and Li Ji as they marched their armies north. However, there is a story about their capture, which is definitely worth mentioning. Jiali Khan said to Li Jin's forces that he would surrender and that he would pay homage to Tang Taizong in Chang'an, after a massive defeat in what is today's Inner Mongolia. But according to He Menghong, author of the book Li Xumin, found in the Tang Dynasty, Strategies That Made China the Greatest Empire in Asia, he said that this surrender was actually not sincere, and the Khan was only looking to stall for winter to thaw and for spring to come, because this was all happening in the month of December. And then the reason why is because then they could resume the campaign season. And as time went by and the Tang envoy came over to accept his surrender, Li Jin felt uneasy and he sensed Jiali Khan's insincerity. 
So he ordered his army to march under the cover of a fog, which was unfolding, uh, that happens at that time of year. And with the cover of the fog and with such speed, Jali Khan had no idea that they were making a move and they had no idea that they were just marching towards his camp. And it makes sense for Jiali Khan to feel that way, right? I mean, there is a Tang envoy sent over from the emperor himself. There were rules for envoys and negotiations, and the Tang were actually breaking those rules. But by the time Jiali Khan seen what was happening, it was already too late. Li Jin actually recalled a story where the legendary general Han Xin of the founding, like the, the founding general of the Han Dynasty did the same thing against the Duchy of Qi way back in the Chu Han contention. And after a little history lesson to a subordinate, he launched his forces against Jiali Khan, whose army scrambled and ran away once again. It was this time that Jiali was captured, and then he was sent to Chang'an. And surprisingly, Tan Taizong took his political prisoner and treated him nicely. But this was of course after a good talking to when Jiali Khan was brought to him. It is surprising that Tang Taizong did treat him in this kind of way, which I'll get to later. Uh, but anyway, in this grand ceremony, Tang Taizong said, quote, You relied on the prosperous situation developed by your grandfather. This at last led to your own destruction. This is your first crime. You made peace treaties with me several times and then you broke the agreements. This is your second crime. You are a warmonger. You have caused the deaths of many of Turkic soldiers and Chinese soldiers. This is your third crime. You ordered your soldiers to destroy the crops in my territory and loot my people. This is your fourth crime. I forgave you for your offences and intended to preserve your canot, but you delayed and would not come on time. This is your fifth crime. But since our peace treaty was made by the bridge over Weishui River Bridge, which was where a battle was held, where the the town, well, the Sui were defeated by these people once upon a time ago. Um, anyway, continue the quote. You have not carried out a massive invasion into the territory of the Tang Dynasty. This is the reason why I have decided to spare you. End quote. After this talking to... Tan Taizong then gave Jiali Khan a nice palace to live out the rest of his days. Now, like I said earlier, it's quite surprising that Tan Taizong did this. I mean, considering that he, like Jiali Khan was clearly untrustworthy. He broke so many peace treaties in the past and yet here's the Tang Emperor forgiving him. Now, there's two reasons why I think this might be. The first is that if you keep this guy alive, then you can keep yourself as being the legitimate ruler over the Eastern Turkic Kaganate. And that's quite a nice thing to have. If this guy's paying homage to you, then clearly by default, you're the leader of all these people. And the uh, Tantai Zone does later claim that. Um, the second reason as well is that maybe he wanted to show or prove that to these people, the Chinese were friends and therefore... There's no point in invading from the north anymore. That's another theory that I kind of just came up with. And third, it could be that he was trying to prove that he was superior to him by letting him live. 
Because if there was the other way around, I'm pretty sure Jiaoli Khan would have had Tan Tai Zong beheaded or something. So, I mean, yeah, I said two, but there's three there. Um, it could well be that. Like, we'll never know, I guess. But, I mean, keeping him alive did seem like the better option, like, for political and moral purposes, I guess. Uh, anyway, however, Jiaoli Khan was not particularly happy with his life in exile, and even though it was a luxurious one. And he was depressed because palaces weren't really for him. Uh, he even built a tent in his gardens to remind him of his homeland and the grasslands. So Tantaizon gave him actually like some land to like close to the north in the borders where he could live out the rest of his days in familiar territory where he could hunt and live that nomadic lifestyle that he was used to. However, it still wasn't the same. And with time, the former leader soon got depressed and drunk himself to death. And I mean, I guess I could see why he would be depressed. Like, he used to be the leader of this massive cabinet that controlled so much territory. And he was such an important person. And then he just became a political prisoner. Sometimes that's hard for people to take. Now, Tuli Khan, his son, was actually treated similarly. Because remember, they're sworn, he's sworn brothers with the emperor. Um, the difference was, though, that he was given a military posting in modern-day Hebei province, which is the one that surrounds Beijing today. Tuli was given a lecture by the emperor warning him that if he tried anything funny, that he would be, quote, punished severely, end quote. And then he went on to say that he was to govern the province with Chinese laws and customs only. Now, I'm pretty sure that that punished severely thing would have meant that he would have been put to death. So this was like a chance for him to prove his loyalty to uh, the Tang court. And once the leaders were dealt with, there was debate within the Tang court uh, in regard to the issue of the Turks in the north in general. One minister suggested that all of them should be forced to move south of the Yangtze River, where they would become peasants farming the land and that way they would be more, quote, civilized, as well as getting that aggressive barbarism out of them. However, another minister named Wen Yanbo suggested, quote, When Emperor Guangwu of the later Han Dynasty defeated the Huns, he placed the Huns who surrendered within the eastern Wu Yuan Sai, which is basically Inner Mongolia. The tribes of the Huns were kept intact. The Huns became a buffer for the Han Dynasty. The Huns did not leave their homeland and they kept their lifestyle and traditions. In this way, the Huns were comforted. Now, if the Eastern Turks were placed in the areas of Yan and Yu, which was southern China, it would be against their originally sparsely inhabited will of nature. This is not the right way to provide for the benefits of the people of the Eastern Turks. I hope your majesty will adopt the policy favoured by Emperor Guangwu. By doing so, your majesty will show the Turks that... Your Majesty equally cares for the benefits of these people. End quote. Tan Tai Zone actually took the advice of this minister and he then later named himself the title Heavenly Khan, which again showed that he was the leader of these people after all. And that was that. The Tang had completely smashed the Eastern Turkic Khaganate to the north and were traveling west as well, to, in order to secure that lucrative trade from the Silk Road. 
The borders of the Tang Dynasty had exceeded those of any other Chinese dynasty ever, eclipsing even the Han. What is strange though, is that even the great Tang Taizong simply could not subdue those troublesome Gregorio tribes to the northeast, which had penetrated the Korean peninsula and were a bit of a troublesome neighbour to have. They refused to pay tribute to the Sui dynasty and had decimated three Sui campaigns to subdue them. Now it was Tang Taizong's turn. Personally leading an expedition against the Gregorio in 645, Tang Taizong said, quote, The Gregorio king is cruel to his people, and he steals our land. I can't tolerate such behaviour but to fight with you, end quote. And after nine months of campaigning in modern-day Korea, the Tang army didn't really gain much in terms of territorial expansion, and the Gregorio still refused to pay tribute to them. Shortly after, Tang Taizong launched another invasion, which was somewhat more successful, but it didn't get the Gregorio paying tribute anyway, and the Tang simply just gained a little bit more land. Now, Tang Taizong did plan a third campaign, but he died before he could launch it. It was Emperor Galzong who would eventually bring the Gregorio to heel somewhat, and it would be Kublai Khan, the Mongol emperor of the Yuan dynasty, who would finally wipe the Gregorio out in the year 1259, over 600 years after the Sui and the Tang dynasty tried to do just that. Kublai Khan even mentioned the following, quote, Koryo, that was the name, by the way, that he called it, is a country of a myriad miles. Since the time of Emperor Taizong of the Tang, who personally led an expedition against it, it could not be subjugated. Now that it is heir apparent has come to submit to me, it must be the will of heaven. End quote. Now, if one of the greats, like Kublai Khan, who we'll get to in the future, no idea when that will be, but we'll get to him, is giving you such high praise, you know you have done something right with your life. Tan Taizong was definitely a great leader. He may have killed his two brothers to usurp power, but the counter-argument to this is that he brought China to the highest of high heights that it had ever seen. Not only had he expanded China's territory to its largest size yet, he had managed the laws of his empire in a sound way and allowed the Tang economy to thrive under his leadership. Li Xiumin, Tan Taizong, certainly set up the foundations for a great dynasty emerge, which did happen. Now, I'm going to leave it there with uh, Tan Taizong because um, I'm going way over what I thought I would be going over <laughs> with the discussions about him. Um, there was other things that Tan Taizong did, in particular in Tibet. He sent a lot of envoys and things with, to negotiate deals with the Tibetan Empire that was there at the time. And from what I read, it was a bit of a peaceful relationship between the two. Um, I may be horribly wrong on that, but I didn't see any major wars breaking out between the Tang and the Tibetans at the time. And um, yeah, that was basically Li Shimin and Tai Taizong, well, the same person, in a nutshell there. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to hearing from you again on the next episode of the Conroker Podcast channel, which will be all about the Qingming Festival. But until then, enjoy the festival. Bye-bye for now.